Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Once Upon a Fan podcast. I am your host, Zach Van Norman, and I am joined by my co-host, Ashley Benson. Hello, Ashley. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Um, you know, again, we're holding out here in Chicago. There are whispers of a polar vortex, which does not please me, but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> How are you doing? Yes, I hear tell of this Arctic vortex circle Snow Queen storm that's, you know, taking over the rest of our country. I am thankfully not part of that being in California. I'm doing pretty good. Um, excited to talk about this week's episode because I didn't think it was possible, but this episode is now my favorite one of the season. It seems to get better and better this year, actually. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it. Oh, I know. I love this episode. I loved, and we'll get into this later, just I loved how subtle it was. It didn't clonk you over the head with a lot of action, but when there was action, it was just so bombastic, and it really just stood out to the entire episode. And we're finally getting answers, and I think that's that's the best thing. Yes, uh, lots more answers still, some mystery going on, still, you know, questions. Um, I was left with some more questions after this episode, which, of course, makes for good television and they build up a mystery that way. So, happy about that. All right, let's see here. So, um, for those of you who are joining us, uh, if you want to get into the chat room, issue my usual disclaimer. Sometimes it takes a few page refreshes before uh, it actually will open for you. However, it is open. I see some of our li- regular listeners in there. Uh, I want to say hi to Angie Konisberg, uh, Rose Mason, Peter Pizza. I see you all in there. So, hello, everybody in there. And, uh, yeah, so if you're trying to get into the chat room and it's not working for you, please just refresh your page a few times because it will eventually load for you, I promise. All right, so we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot of news items to get through today, actually. Uh, So I want to make sure that we have enough time to discuss all of those. So let's just delve on in. Uh, First thing that we want to talk about, of course, is the People's Choice Awards are going on right now. Uh, If you can go to peopleschoice.com to vote for your favorites, and as far as Once Upon a Time goes, we have uh, quite a few categories that we're up for. Both Jennifer Goodwin and Jennifer Morrison are uh, nominated for Favorite Sci-Fi Fantasy Actress. We've also got um, Jenny Goodwin and Josh Dallas for Favorite TV Duo. As far as the favorite character that we missed the most, excuse me, favorite TV character we missed the most, Neil Cassidy has a nomination there, R.I.P. Neil. We've also got Once Upon Up for not only favorite TV show, but favorite network sci-fi fantasy TV show. So Once Upon a Time has two separate television show nominations. Make sure you pay attention to that. Um, Get out there and vote as much as you can, as much as you want. Uh, The awards will air January 7th of next year at 9 p.m. on CBS. So we basically have until then to, you know, vote for our actors and actresses in our show. 
and uh, hopefully get them some recognition at this year's awards. I'm excited about this. We are really well represented at this award show, and uh, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but William Shatner is uh, rallying the once troops uh, to get votes for all these categories, and I think that's pretty neat. I think it's pretty neat, too. I think it's awesome that he is such a big Once Upon a Time fan and that he loves it enough that he you know, came up with basically a five-point plan in order to make sure that, you know, we get some recognition this year. I know that he is trying to recruit the Castle fans to vote for Once Upon a Time. So uh, I think that's really cool that Captain Kirk and, you know, the Priceline negotiator is uh, trying to help our uh, help our show get some recognition. I think that's really awesome. Recognition that oh, yeah. is, uh, yeah, it's recognition that is well-deserved and long overdue for some of them. Um, we're getting a lot of viewership going on lately. And actually, speaking of viewership, I think Ashley has some uh, has some news for us in that regard. I do. I have some numbers here pulled up on my computer. Um, I'm happy to say that the ratings for Sunday's episode remain steady. We had about uh, 7.41 million viewers with a 2.5 share in the 18 to 49 uh, demographic. That is not far off from where we were last week. And actually, looking at uh, some tables online, and I think this is this is the neatest thing, um, our episode, our most recent episode of Once Upon a Time, was just behind The Walking Dead and the big Simpsons Futurama crossover episode. So, I mean, that's pretty respectable. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we remain the number one uh, network drama on Sunday nights and that just warms that warms my frozen heart because I do love this show so much and it's so nice to see the ratings reflect um the strong viewership. How do you feel about that, Zach? I'm really happy about it. Um I know that I've seen some comments and heard some messages from a few people saying that uh, they are a little disinterested by the fact that Frozen is the storyline that is going on in this half of the season. However, um, it's nice to know that there are a huge, that there is a huge group of people out there who disagree. Um, I myself disagree with that because even though the Frozen characters are playing kind of a major role in this season's half, well, this half of the season storyline, at least, um, it's actually more of the original Snow Queen fairy tale that is taking the lead, and the Frozen characters just happen to have worked their way into that. Um, I'm very impressed by the storyline of this half of the season. It is my favorite storyline that we've had since season one. I've said that several times on the podcast, and I will continue to say that because um, I feel that the themes that have to deal with this storyline, uh, the way that they have worked the Snow Queen into the story is very unique, very fresh. And uh, I'm loving what they're doing with it so far. Oh, I definitely have to agree with you, uh, especially on the uh, the Frozen bit. Um, I agree that the Snow Queen really has taken taken the forefront. Her and Emma's story is really the core of what's going on this season. And our Frozen characters, yeah. while they're still there, they're more of a framework, if anything, now. Um, they maybe were a bit more prominent in the beginning of the season, but they've really tapered off a bit and let the the story of Emma and her struggle shine more. I agree with that completely. 
yeah, really, really liking it so far. I also just want to say really quick, too, because I did not say this when we first started, um, our regular host, co-host Amy, Amy Hood, is not joining us this evening. Uh, we're sending lots of love to you, Amy, um, tonight. Uh, we know the reason why you're uh, not hosting with us this evening. I'm not going to get into it because it's uh, kind of a personal business. I know she has um, said why on social media. However, um, on the podcast, I'm just going to keep her Amy's business as Amy's business. But we're sending you lots of love, honey. Um, yes, you know, lots of shenanigans. Yes, lots of, lots of shenanigans and lots of evil queen you know, ugly ducking swan goodness. So love to the hoods and the family. Um, speaking of uh, love, we have some casting news that happened last week while we were literally in the, you know, towards the end of the podcast. Um, very unexpected. <laughs> um, Victoria Smurfit has been cast as an iconic Disney villain on Once Upon a Time for the second half of the season. Her appearance will be teased in the uh, season 4A winter finale heroes and villains. And while normally I would not want to bring it up because of the reason or the the method by which this news was revealed, um, since it's common knowledge, I'm just, you know, we can talk about it. Um, she was cast as Cruella DeVille. Um, she confirmed that on Twitter within two hours of the, uh, of the news breaking last week on Entertainment Weekly which I think was a bit of a surprise to not only social media, but to um, maybe the staff of the show as well. Um, <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't really know how to touch on this and speak about it without, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an awkward situation. Um, and I want to obviously pay all the respect that we can to the creators and the fact that they wanted to keep it secret. However, the, the, uh, the puppies are out of the bag, so to speak. Um, I'm very excited by this. I think that she, um, physically, I think she has a great look for the character. She has a very unique bone structure in her face, which lends itself very well to Corella DeVille's character, especially her uh, rather impressive cheekbone. And oh. I am really excited to see what they're going to do with Corella DeVille. I will say again, as I mentioned last week, um, they have been hinting that Corella DeVille would be making an appearance on this season of Once Upon a Time because we have had two, if not three, warnings about people needing to get a warm coat. And a warm coat is obviously, you know, a reference to Corella DeVille and her hunt for 101 Dalmatians. So very excited about that. Ashley, how do you feel? I am very excited. I um, I think this is going to lend a unique opportunity because Corella isn't some sorceress or wicked witch or somebody like flying in to Storybrooke. At least we don't know if she's arriving in Storybrooke yet. Um, she's more of a, a mundane character. So I'm, I'm interested to see what her role is within Storybrooke, if she was already established there, or if she's somebody who's cropping up anew or brought in to the story. And mostly I'm interested to see how she's going to fit in without uh, using magic, if she's going to use a magical tool, perhaps maybe her coat's enchanted, um, so she herself doesn't have the magic, she just uses uh, a magic implement, but uh, I do, I, I, I'll admit it right now, I do love me some Corella DeVille, uh, she has the best theme song, and I'm really, I'm hoping that Mark uh, uh, Isham, I, I'm murdering his name, 
works maybe some of that iconic music into uh her her theme for the second half of the season. But I'm I'm just I'm excited to see how she's going to fit in with uh with the with the story that's going to be coming for season four B. Yeah, I'm very excited as well. Uh there are a couple things that, you know, I wonder about. Uh one of them we have just touched on as a matter of fact um, how exactly she is going to play into the story, considering that she has no um, naturally occurring magic herself. She mm. is not a sorcerer, you said. Um, she is not a swashbuckling pirate. She is not a wicked witch. She's not a demented man who gave up his child to be a teenager forever. She's just a woman who really has an interesting taste in... Um, clothing, number one, style, number two, and really pursuing her own agenda, which, of course, goes right along with, uh, you know, any villain theme. Um, I will say also that I'm excited that um, the prospect of them doing a 101 Dalmatian storyline also means that we can expect to get some casting news for um, Anita, um, Roger, perhaps Nanny, um, I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, I love those characters. 101 Dalmatians is, um, I think it's a very unique Disney film because it plays in a real life setting. Uh, it doesn't have a, there's no princesses in it. There's, I mean, it's based on animals, um, which was actually a, a more popular storytelling trope in the uh, 1960s, which is when the uh, movie came out. So I'm interested to see how they're going to juxtapose Cruella de Vil against Maleficent. And, of course, a lot of people out there have a lot of theories about how she's going to come into play. I have one myself, which I'll share with you all now. Um, as we all know, Regina is on a quest to change the storybook and give villains a happy ending. And I think that she may end up biting off more than she can chew because my prediction is that Regina will do something that successfully changes the storybook but it will give villains an upper hand, which is why Cruella will be joining the, for, the fray um, as well as Maleficent. Um, I just also would like to say that the thought of having Regina the Evil Queen, Captain Hook, Cruella de Vil, and Maleficent all on screen, possibly at the same time in the same scene, makes my Disney villain fan heart uh, giddy with joy. And I am really excited at the prospect of that, and I hope that they find a way to make a scene like that happen. I really enjoy your theory. I definitely, I think that as well. I'm not going to lie, when you just listed off all the characters, the biggest grin came onto my face because I too, the Disney villains are a unique breed, and they're very popular. So having them all, and actually seeing even the Evil Queen and Captain Hook is more of a protagonist versus, I guess, the outright Maleficent and Cruella de Vil antagonist would be interesting as well. You know, Fifty Shades of Villains, if, if you will. Um, and I will mention, and somebody mentioned this in the chat room too, and it did pop in my head, we have the potential of seeing Horace and Jasper, and I'm kind of excited to see that too. Yeah, I am very excited about that as well. Um and it's funny, when you just said Fifty Shades of Villains, uh, the first thing I thought that popped in my head was, you know, villains can't change their spots. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, see what I did there? That you would be a good tag. Yeah. That would be a good tag for 4B. Hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. Villains can't change their spots. Um, and I, you know what? Honestly, I would love to see Cruella and Maleficent working together on some sort of plot, even if they don't get any other villains involved. Um, you know, and it also kind of does beg the question because we have seen out of the Disney pantheon of villains, we have already seen obviously uh, the Queen of Hearts, um, our dear friend Cora Mills, <coughs> which. And um, we've also seen um, Ursula, although portrayed by Regina, we did see her appear in statue form in the episode Ariel of season 3A. So I am intrigued as to whether or not we will actually see the real Ursula come into play now that we have some villains um, joining the story and possibly getting happy endings. I would love that. I would love that because it would also mean that we get some event Nicole Brown on the show and... I could not wish for more. Um, just and, and the thing about it, too, though, we don't know who's hanging out in the town. I mean, look at Bo Peep, for instance. She's just been chilling in the butcher shop and kind of was content to leave all of the charmings and their craziness alone. So I'm wondering if, as you theorized, uh, Regina biting off more than she can chew, if that causes more villains to come crawling out of the woodwork now that thing, the tables have turned and uh, things are looking up for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the fact that villains may be getting the upper hand on everybody this, you know, the second half of the season. And I'm so excited for when the spring premiere happens. And, you know, speaking of the spring premiere, um, a little bit of some programming information that we have, and Ashley has that for you. Yes, I do. Um, well, next Sunday, next Sunday, make sure your DVRs are properly set because it is the two-hour Once Upon a Time extravaganza, Smash the Mirror. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I'd like when they extend their storylines, um, like how that we had the two-parter last season. I felt like that gives an opportunity to really flesh out a good, meaty story. You can tell that I'm hungry if I'm like, mmm, meaty fleshy stories. Anyway, um, <laughs> also in programming news, there is no Once Upon a Time on November 23rd due to the American Music Awards, similar to what happened last year. So, I mean, we all kind of, after our two, hour, two hours of Once Upon a Time, we'll you know, have to take a breather, unfortunately, but uh, what are you going to do? Um, and then finally, the winter finale for season 4A is scheduled for December 14th, and then we'll be, we will be returning in the spring, uh, March 1st. So, I mean, we've, we're we're close to the end of this uh, season. I'm really surprised we only have a few episodes left. I'm very surprised as well, and I'm kind of sad about it because we only have one, two, three, four episodes to go, um, which is kind of crazy because I remember how long it, it seemed to take for us to get to season four's premiere period. And now we're already approaching the point where we're going to have the next three months off. Um, which is kind of, uh, kind of shocking to me that we've come so far so quickly. I know we're already seven episodes in, but it seems like time is really flying. I think that a lot of us feel that way though. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Ashley or anybody in the podcast um, chat room, because it seems like as soon as once upon a time premieres, we all basically live for Sunday nights. 
So um, I do. the days I I know I do. Yeah. So it seems like the days in between seem to just go by faster because we're searching for our next fix for once upon a time. It, it and, really does. Uh, I mean, because we we have the we have the episode, and then Monday's kind of all thinking, reviewing, et cetera. Tuesday's the podcast, and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday's like, okay, is it the weekend yet? Is it time to start thinking about once again? So I completely agree with that. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And, you know, speaking of the fact that the hiatus is on its way, um, we're actually going to uh, – we have made a decision as far as what we're going to do for the winter hiatus. You know, normally we do a rewatch of past Once Upon a Time episodes. However, over the last few hiatuses, hiati, I don't even know what the plural is for that, um, we have done so many episode rewatches that we're pretty much almost out of them. And to be honest, we have seen and discussed episodes in season one and two so many times that um, it's kind of like beating a dead horse um, or a dead queen of hearts. So Ooh. rather than – yeah, I went there. Rather than doing <laughs> that, we're going to do something a little bit different, and I'm actually going to turn it on – turn it on – turn it over to Ashley for this part also, and then we'll get to the next news bit after that. So, Ashley, if you want to go ahead and talk about the winter hiatus a bit. Sure thing, though. I really think it would be more appropriate to sing about it. Um, however, you guys aren't getting that, at least not yet. For <laughs> our, I'm not, you heard me sing at Comic-Con. I, I shan't be singing here. Um, for our podcast schedule for the winter hiatus, we will be covering Galavant. And I'm pretty excited about this. So um, we're going to do uh, two episodes per uh, podcast and the podcast will be on a bi-weekly basis. So starting January 13th, we're going to be covering Galvan episodes one and two. On January 27th, we'll do episodes three and four. February 10th, episodes five and six. February 24th, episodes seven and eight. And then we'll be returning to our regular scheduled programming on uh, March 3rd. So yeah, we we got a little bit of a clip uh, for. Um, of Galavant while at San Diego Comic-Con. And I'm really intrigued about it, uh, particularly because I know there's a huge, I don't want to say movement, but there's definitely a lot of voices calling out for a musical episode in the Once Upon a Time fandom. So I feel like this might be something that could answer that uh, need, that desire for a musical fairy tale extravaganza, um, and I'm just interested to see how they're going to do this, how they're going to work it out. Uh, what do you think, Zach? Um, I, as, as, you, as you mentioned, um, we did get a preview of Galavant during San Diego Comic-Con. Um, for those of you who are in attendance, Ashley and myself, of course, were. Um, outside the ABC booth, which was the castle, they were playing – um, commercials for several ABC shows that are coming out this year, uh, some of which have premiered already, such as uh, Forever. Um, and also another show that comes out in January that I know that Ashley and I and Amy are all salivating over, which is called The Whispers. Yes! Sorry, I just get, like, Lily raved, um, and I get really excited because it looks really good. Continue, my pa. It does look really good. Um, but we, we were treated to a, a preview of what Galavant is going to be and I will say that the reason why I am the most excited about it is because it has much more of an adult tone. 
obviously once upon a time has an adult tone as well there are a lot of things that happen in it that are actually very mature even though it's played off in a more subdued way because of the you know family audience watching uh for example crushing people's hearts to kill them um kind of a, that's not a very lighthearted thing if you think about it so um yeah this but Gallivant has more of a mature tone which was proven by the initial commercial that they showed which referred to Gallivant's true love as having a touch of nymphomania so <laughs> that right there and also discussing um how many times Gallivant and his woman like to frolic shall we say so um there were some references to that. So I think that it's going to be much more of an adult tone. What I'm intrigued by is the fact that this show is not going for its standard prince has to save the princess from the king. They're actually stating it in all of the advertisements for the show that when he goes to rescue his lady love, she actually chooses the bad guy and she chooses to be with the king. And he has to kind of figure out how life goes on after that. And so that's what I'm a, that's what I'm most intrigued by is the fact that this is not a run-of-the-mill fairy tale. Um, they're doing something very different with it. I am excited about the more adult tone. I think that it's still going to be good for a family-friendly audience. However, I, there are many television shows, particularly animation, or animated shows, rather, which incorporate adult humor in a way that passes over the heads and minds of children who are watching. And I think that Gallivant is going to do the same thing. And uh, I also love the fact that it is a comedy musical extravaganza. That's how it's being termed by the publicity department. Um, having a comedy musical and have it be more of a, I mean, it's a have a more funny side to it. I think that that's awesome. Uh, that's something I'm really looking forward to. I think that ABC has a lot of great um, comedy programming, particularly in the show Modern Family. So I think that it has a lot of potential to kind of be an unexpected surprise for a lot of people. Oh, this is something we really haven't seen um, as a an episodic TV show, have we? Um, most of it feels really Monty Python esque to me, like very Monty yes. Python, the Holy Grail. Um, but I really I cannot recall off the top of my head a show that has a fantasy or a fantastical setting that also is a musical, but that isn't a miniseries. You know what I mean? So this is this is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, and I'm really excited about it. I've been looking forward to it since July. So the fact that now we have a premiere date, um, it premieres on Sunday, January 4th, um, 8 p.m. on ABC at, you know, in Once's uh, regular time slot. Pretty stoked about that. Um, I will also say, too, that I'm glad that I, it's kind of a bittersweet thing because they're airing it in Once Upon a Time's time slot during the winter hiatus, which will give it a better shot at succeeding. But it also is bittersweet because they learned that lesson because of what happened with Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. <sighs> and, I, yeah. and, I, and, you know, that's kind of obvious. So I really wish that they had known this before so that Wonderland could have had a better shot um, and possibly even a second season, um, possibly even a DVD Blu-ray release, because as of yet, we have not had any announcement for a Wonderland Blu-ray or DVD, nor have we had an announcement about a season three 
soundtrack for Once Upon a Time, both of which makes me quite sad because Mark Eichen's music is divine and there are many musical cues that I think I would like to hear without any dialogue. I would like to hear the full version of it, particularly the Outlaw Queen theme. So, um, yeah, it's a little bittersweet. However, I think Alabama's going to be really good. I think it's going to be funny. I hope that a lot of people tune in and watch it, and we certainly hope that all of you, our listeners, will be joining in to watch it with us as we review it during the hiatus. Um, with that being said, uh, it's kind of a sentimental item for our last news bulletin, which is that Once Upon a Time just celebrate, or excuse me, Once Upon a Fan just celebrated its third birthday, um, which honestly, I'm very proud. I'm just going to kind of get into it, I guess. I'm really proud of all the work that the team has accomplished so far. It has grown from being a one-page news blog to a site that encompasses um, origins articles about fairy tale characters, theories about what's going to happen, a timeline of everything that has happened, a family tree, a section for fan art. We have forums, of which Ashley is a moderator. We have social media pages on Facebook and Twitter, YouTube, um, Google+, Pinterest. It has really grown by leaps and bounds from where it first started. I myself did not join the staff until about a year after Once Upon a Time premiered. Gareth Hughes, our editor, began the, the, uh, the blog. It was a blog back then. Um, only weeks after Once Upon a Time premiered back in 2011. I joined in in season two with my fan theories, and then that led to me writing some origins articles myself, reporting from San Diego Comic-Con. And really, as much as Once Upon a Time, the show changed my life, Once Upon a Fan, the website, changed it probably in greater measure. Because the people that I have met, the Oneser community that has formed around this show, um, I have made friends that I, I consider family now that are going to be my friends long after the show is gone. Um, lifelong, you know, lifeblood kind of friends that I was not really expecting to meet. Uh, last year, particularly when we all participated in the Enchanticon convention, which many listeners were there, Ashley was there as well, although she was not a staff member yet, um, really cemented our bond as a once upon a family. And actually, once that convention is where I met Ashley for the first time, and so many of you also in person, like Peter Pizza, Angie Konisberg, um, God, so many people, uh, the cosplayers that we see online, like Julia Tramberg and her sister, um, Karen Morrow, my dear friend Karen Morrow, um, Laurie Hancock, another um, great once or pal of mine. So such a great love and relationship, you know, and many great relationships with people have been formed because of this fan site. And I'm really so, so grateful to Gareth for even starting it, for including me on the staff, and also so proud of all the work that we've done and so in love with all the friends that we've made. Um, so that, that's pretty much how I feel about it. Ashley, please, you know, the floor is yours about this. Well, I do feel quite the same way. I, I joined the site much later than you did, but I was very inspired by everything that the site was doing. I learned about it, like you said, at Enchanticon, where we met at, like, ships passing the night almost. It was kind of like a hi, and then it was like, okay, she's dressed like an old lady. We're, you know, we're, we're going to go now. We, You and I really didn't hang out until I joined the site, and 
having the opportunity to moderate the forums, that was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. I sent so much information to Gareth, like, please let me have this chance to be a part of this amazing community and to spread just the celebration of this TV show, which, like you said, has changed so many people's lives for the better. Help, let me help you spread that celebration. So just, I mean, even the staff members that I've got to meet at different conventions and stuff, like at Maury and Amy at uh, at Spooky uh, Mayhem, and then all, like, again, all the uh, all the oncers that I've met from covering cons or being motivated to go to cons because of Once Upon a Fan, it's just like, I, I, the list of names that I could read off would be, it would take up the rest of the podcast because so I've met so many amazing people through this. And I think that's what's most important because these people that we meet through this show, they're the ones that are leaving the impression on us the most. And they're the ones that we are going to remember long after the show ends. And that's very special. And that's something you really, when you find your tribe, you know what I mean? It's yeah. something very special and something that doesn't happen easily. So I feel very blessed to have been able to have the opportunity through the fan site to find my people. You know what I mean? That's exactly how I feel too. Um, you know, and speaking from more of a personal point of view, being part of a minority group as myself, because, you know, I, I happen to be gay. Um, I've always kind of looked for, as you said, been, you know, been searching for my tribe been searching for people who accept me and love me and, you know, who just make me feel included in their lives and, you know, build relationships with. And I never could have imagined that I would have built such strong, loving, long-lasting relationships off of a television show. I I mean, that just, it does, it's such a rare thing to have happen. Obviously, there are many television shows out there that have large groups of fans that all get together. But it seems like with Once Upon a Time, the viewership and the Once Upon a Family is unique because of the fact that the themes that the show is dealing with is really what touched all of us, the themes of hope and faith and, you know, believing in a happy ending. And, and you know, as Mary Margaret said in season three, you know, she says that fairy tales are a reminder that things will get better if you just hold on to hope. And it's not just believing in fairy tales that have that effect, but I think that believing in this show has had that effect on people because those themes are very, very strong. They're very relevant, and they affect people in a very, very deep way, which is obvious by the community that is formed around this show. So I am so grateful to, be, to know all of you and, you know, to be a part of this, to be the host of this podcast, for crying out loud. I mean, I never would have imagined that I would be doing anything like this when I first started with the site. Um, you know, it's been weird a year now into the podcast, and I can't believe that because I remember our very first one, our very first few of them, actually. Well, I mean, I can pretty much remember them all, but it was just such a – it's been such a crazy, incredible ride. And for everybody out there that I have not met, like Rose Mason, um, Sarah Egan, all of you who I haven't met in person yet, have faith that one day we will because I do. I know that one day we, I will meet all of you. It may not all be at the same time, the same place, but we will all meet eventually uh, one way or another and get together for coffee, talk about the show, talk about life, talk about the hope and the love that it has inspired in all of us, and we'll all find our own happy ending. That's really what 
what I think the show has brought the most is that people believe in the possibility of a happy ending for themselves and they're willing to go out there and create it. They're willing to create a happy ending, to create a great day, to, you know, really just seek their own happiness. And I, I mean, that's really why I love the show so much. Don't mind me. I just have like a tree branch in my eye. I mean, is somebody cutting onions in here or something? Uh, you're giving me the feel, Zach. Honey, try some gum. Um, <laughs> yeah, birdcage reference for anybody who didn't get it. So, um, yeah, with that being said, um, much love to all of you. Thank you all for listening to the podcast, for contributing to Once Upon a Fan, your theories, your fan art, tweeting with us, you know, posting on Facebook, commenting on things. It really means a lot just to help build the community up. So we love you guys. And, you know, we're going to continue this until the show is done. You know, we'll be a once upon a family forever even after that. So with that being said, I would like to get into the uh, discussion of the episode now because if I don't stop with this line of discussion, I am going to have somebody cutting onions under my eyes myself. So there we go. Um, There are so many hearts and smiley faces in the chat room, by the way. This is just like... I'm feeling the love through my, t- or my my computer screen. I'm seeing oh. it. Yeah, I'm feeling it too. Yeah, I love all you guys. So, um, yeah, this episode of Once Upon a Time was, as I stated at the beginning of the broadcast, my favorite one of the season so far. I have to – there are a few things that I just have to say. Well, actually, you know what? I'll wait. I'll wait till we get to the, to the discussion of the scenes themselves before I heap praise on anybody because – there's a lot of praise to go around um, <laughs> this episode. So we actually, instead of doing our normal, you know, play-by-play recap, as you all know, we've been uh, incorporating a new segment called Reflections, and we will be getting to that um, in just a few minutes later on in the podcast. But rather than break it down and, you know, do a play-by-play of what happened to lead us to those events, we've actually boiled down the episode into a few talking points, uh, specific topics that we want to discuss. So the first one that we're going to discuss is Regina and Robin Hood. Now, if you were listening to this podcast, then you know that this week on Once Upon a Time, Robin Hood made two attempts to reconcile with Regina. The first one, she rejected him. He met her down in the crypt. She told him that he needs to leave her alone. He needs to focus on marrying his wife. He needs to focus on waking her up and loving her and and true love's kiss, you know, and well, not waking her up, but unfreezing her rather. Um, but then, after a discussion with Will Scarlet at Granny's Diner, in which Will said that if you can find somebody worth ruining your life for, then it's always worth it. He went back and pursued her again, and though she rebuffed him a second time, he just did the brave thing and. And just admitted the fact that he cannot move on with Marion because he loves Regina so much. Now, first I'll ask Ashley what you think of Robin Hood and everything that, you know, all the actions that he took in this episode. Well, personally, I think, I think in, in, hmm, hmm, looking at the relationship as a whole, I'm glad that they have some movement. They, it's, it's more, is moving along now as opposed to the kind of the standstill that we've had since the um well since Marion got frozen, so it was that episode one. They've kind of been at this 
that there was a wall between them where one would push and the other would try to push back, but they weren't really going anywhere. So I'm glad to see that finally someone has taken a step. Someone has made a more definitive decision. Um, I find it interesting that Will Scarlet was the one to kind of rattle Robin's cage and get him moving on that. Um, but I am interested to see what's going to happen next. Like, yes, we got the, the big moment. We got the, the the big grand smooch. But I want to see what's happening after. I'm I'm more interested, I think, in that aspect. And since we only have, what did you say, four episodes left in the this half of the season, I'm wondering uh, what uh, what is going to be in their immediate future. I'm interested in that as well. I uh, I think I I think that I'm very torn about that. I'm very I'm kind of torn about this, and yet I'm kind of not. I've seen a lot of people saying that it was wrong for Robin Hood to essentially cheat on his wife and attempt to go be with Regina because she's and especially with the fact that she is you know a Marian sickle. Um. <laughs> However, I don't this, – this issue has actually been addressed before, and it was addressed in season one because, as we all know, David Nolan made the choice to essentially cheat on his wife, Catherine, in the first season. And at that time, nobody – I saw some comments back then, people saying that it was wrong for him to do, but on the whole – Everybody agreed that, well, he's supposed to be with Snow White, and we were so caught up in rooting for Snow and Charming to get back together that we accepted his infidelity because we wanted him to be with his true love. I've seen a lot of people saying that it was wrong for Robin Hood to cheat on his wife because, you know, he's, number one, they're married, and number two, he's such a noble man. But I think that there's kind of a double standard going on here. Um, Because if we can all root for David and Snow White to get together at the cost of his marriage to Catherine, even if they were cursed, then nobody who did that can say a word about what Robin Hood has done with Regina because it's the exact same situation. I completely agree with you. I'm I'm glad that you brought this up because I do feel the same way. Like I'm, I'm, semi-conflicted and I'm not because I do remember from season one rooting for Snow White and Charming myself and feeling a little guilty for Catherine but at the same time I so wanted to see Snow and Charming get together that I just it's all very muddled Very Shades of Grey mm-hmm. um, a lot of confliction going on in the chat room as well um of people saying that, you know, is, you know, and, and actually um, Sarah Benedict is asking the question, what Robin Hood did, is that cheating? And, you know, that is a really good question. Uh, what people consider cheating or infidelity, you know, different people define it in different ways. There is emotional infidelity. There is physical infidelity. Um, sometimes both. And, you know, what Robin Hood did as far as kissing Regina, consider that a little bit of infidelity. 
it's not full blown. Well, well, I will say this: it may have just been implied, but uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not entirely sure that kissing was the only thing that they did down there in the crypt. Um, You're saying the vault was a rockin', so we shouldn't come a knockin'. Um, essentially, yes. Uh, it's obviously, like I said, it's implied and we, we, it's not like they would ever do a full on love scene on the show. Let's be real. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll, if the, if, so let's do this. Let's just play devil's advocate and, or Rumpel's advocate. And say that, let's say that he just kissed her. Is that cheating? Well, yeah, I consider that to be cheating. I do. I agree. I agree with you. Um, if, but I'm still if, rooting for those two. That's the thing that I'm like, I, I no. know his actions. He's not living by the. He's not rather do. Uh, he's not living by this code when he goes and, and scoops up Regina and smooches her. And I know that, but I still am rooting for this couple, and I kind of don't know how I feel about that, but I also am kind of like, well, considering how things have played out with couples in the past on the show, I'm not terribly worried. So I... And actually, I want to point out, too, that Sarah Benedict, in the, in the comments, when her um, previous comment about is that cheating... She has a good point that the relationship between Robin and Regina started technically when Marion was dead, and it was the whole time travely, timey wininess that is now what's screwing things up for Regina and um, Robin. So the relationship in itself was, or it began without a drop of infidelity in it, but this current action, I think, is the one that really is bugging me. Um, this this show has always dealt in shades of gray. This is another gray area. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know how to feel either because Back in season one, I was full-on rooting for Charming and Snow to get together, and I was basically like, forget Catherine, dude. She's not anyone to you, like, at all. Get back with your wife. Are you kidding me? Like, she is your true love. Regina is Robin Hood's true love. But I think that the difference here, and I think that this is what may be causing people some uh, some of their confliction. Speaking for myself and many other people that I know, Catherine was not a particularly likable character. She just wasn't. And on the other hand, is a softer character. She's not as, um, what's the word I want, severe perhaps. She's not as, not as rigid of a character. She's more, she's more loving. She's a mother. We've seen what a nice person she is because of the scenes between her and Emma in, the, in Regina's you know, dungeon. So I'm thinking that it's, that Marion is more likable and that Robin is so, well, he's just as noble as Charming. And so it's the fact that Marion is more likable than Catherine, I think is what's causing a lot of people their, their confliction on this. Um, and I, I may be wrong, but I think that that is part of it. You know, there wasn't a family before there wasn't a family when Charming and Catherine were married. 
Um, Catherine was, you know, we didn't see a lot of time with her. And what we did see with her, even though she was, you know, nice enough and all, they kind of established in Snow Falls that she's a bit of a hard ass. So um, I think that that is that that is really what makes a difference. Um, Sarah Egan is saying in the chat room that in season one they were cursed. Now it's time travel. Meanwhile, um, I see a comment from Rose Mason saying that, you know, in season one, we knew that Charming and Catherine were never really married. They were false memories. However, Robin Hood and Marion are truly married. They are husband and wife. That all of these things combined to make it a much more complicated situation. Ultimately, we know that Robin Hood and Regina are going to get together. We know that. It may be a matter of time, but we know that they're going to get together. But the question is, what happens to Marion? And as I stated in my season four um, preview article before the season started of what I thought was going to happen, my prediction article rather, is that if Robin Hood is Regina's true love, then that means that he is not Marion's true love, which means that Marion's true love is still in Storybrooke somewhere waiting to be found. Now, whether that true love is in the form of a romance with somebody who is available, such as Will Scarlet, perhaps. Well, or, on. If, or if it's a family love where her true love is her son, Roland, which would mirror Emma and Henry. Either way, Marion's true love is somewhere in Storybrooke, and I, I don't want her to die. I want her to still end up with someone who loves her and have a happy ending because I don't think it's fair to the character of Marion that she has to die just because Robin and Regina have to get together. Um, I now, truly agree that, with you on that. I am intrigued, Ashley, by what you were just going to say when I mentioned Will Scarlet. Oh, about Mulan? Or, oh, 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 I didn't even think about that. I want yes. Mulan to have a happy ending, so. So would that, so would there, shouldn't they be Murian? Or, or Malarian? Oh, God, no. That's Warrior Ma- I, th- I think, pe- I think uh, people are already shipping it, and I think it's Warrior Maiden. I, 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 I can't be, I can't be trusted. The intertubes know well, or the interwebs know well. But um, honestly, with how everything on the show twists and turns and people meet and then they forget and then they meet again, I agree with you. I do not want Marion to get killed off for the sake of Robin and Regina's relationship. But I want for both for both the outlaw queen couple and perhaps whatever Marion's ultimate fate is, I want that to go and be a shining example of what David said back in season two, Zombie David said to Regina in the stable, then love again. I want to see that in action with this show. And I think we are starting to creep towards that. I agree. I really hope that that Robin Hood, you know, I want them all to have a happy ending. Jordan Wright is saying in the chat room she wonders how they're going to how she's going to saw if Robin has moved on. Um, I'm hoping that either Roland like everyone figures out that hey why don't you have Roland kiss her, or um, <laughs> honestly and I know how people feel about Will Scarlet and Anastasia the Red Queen on Once Upon a Time in Wonderland I get it. However, since that clearly did not work out for whatever reason which has yet to be revealed, 
if Will Scarlet were to end up with Maid Marian, number I that seems like almost a natural pairing. Um, it would, however, I think it would create a lot of strife between Robin Hood and Will Scarlet, which would be interesting. But um, either way, I I want also, and the reason why I say that is because I want Will to have a happy ending too. It is pressing to me that he is without his Anastasia. Um, because they worked so hard and fought so hard for that happy ending in Wonderland and for it to end the way that it, if it ended badly, whether she died or they just split up, it's really sad. So anyways, that's, that's, that's just what I think about it. Um, moving on to our next topic of discussion, which is a big one. Emma and the Snow Queen. Ooh. Yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh is right. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, this one's going to take some time, folks, because Emma and the Snow Queen really got into it. The Snow Queen got into Emma's head in a major, major way um, during the interrogation. Of course, obviously, Emma began the episode with a magic candle. P.S. What is it with magic candles on this show? Um, they just seem to pop up everywhere. But um, I digress. Focus. though. It was so hocus pocus. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wouldn't it be amazing if they brought the Sanderson sisters once upon a time? Anyways, Bette Midler, we're calling you. Anyways, um, oh, dude, that would be epic. So, um, anyways, um, Emma ended up catching the Snow Queen by blowing the magic fire into create shackles, which it makes sense. Fire and ice are go. You know, they're opposing factors, so it makes sense that fire would be the thing that would catch the Snow Queen. I loved it. Um, but then she brought Emma brought the Snow Queen down to the station for an interrogation, and after Elsa went off on her a little bit, Emma told her she had to leave because, you know, they had to get some answers. And Emma thought that she was better suited to find those answers than anybody else was. Well, <laughs> that's not to be a huge mistake in judgment because that is not what happened at all. The Snow Queen was able to get into Emma's head and heart in a major way playing this extremely twisted mental game that only a truly twisted person could do to somebody, whether you, I mean, whether, if you say that you love somebody, then you're not going to sit there and play some kind of mental game like that. You're just, you're not. That's, that is a, a perversion of what love is. It's twisted. It's sick. It obviously indicates that that person needs some kind of help. Um, and she does. The Snow Queen needs all kinds of Archie Hopper help. Um, I don't even know if he could do it by himself. Like he he needs like a couple of clones, um, perhaps you know a hundred and one of them. Um, oh, anyways. I see what you did there. Yeah, I went there. So um, I will just say too about this scene, the interrogation scene in you know um, in the sheriff station. You all know that I love Jennifer Morrison a lot that she has had a huge effect on me in my life, particularly with her portrayal of the character, Emma. However, I have to give Jennifer Morrison a full round of snaps and applause for her performance in that scene. Because when she said to Elizabeth Mitchell, snow queen, they love me. The look on her face, the tone of her voice, I was genuinely kind of afraid of Emma Swan for the first time ever. Oh, are you talking about the desk glare? Like when when the Snow Queen's getting in her role, the very the very final scene of them in the interrogation room, where the Snow Queen's on her roll, and Emma kind of yes. like looks over her shoulder. She's she's almost like she's cast in stone. And 
that that all oh, that look. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. That, that look was, that could have made an Alton Brown dish on Chopped. I'm telling you. <laughs> that was that was for, that was for you, Ashley. That was totally for you. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah, that that look, and then her explosive use of magic that blew a hole in the wall was. Well, it. She she oh. slammed her fist down on the desk, and it burst and uh, it it broke the wall. It, br- it broke through a brick wall. Like imagine if she actually was like trying to hurt the Snow Queen. She wasn't just venting her frustration on the desk. Imagine if she completely lost her temper and like I don't know went to go backhand the Snow Queen. She'd probably turn her head around. And that is kind <laughs> of scary. It was very scary. And I just want to say, too, that isn't it fantastic that it was the perfect metaphor, by the way, that when the Snow Queen finally broke through Emma's walls, Emma broke the wall. Ah. Are we all catching that? See? Yes. What? And I also just want to say, too, that the look on Elizabeth Mitchell's face after Emma blew the hole (laughs) in the wall... And she stood up and she just took that, she magicked the shackles away and she had that look on her face when she put up her hands in a very ruffled flare, by the way. When she raised her hand up, I thought of Rumple doing his little flare. Um, the The look on her face in those two moments, I was like, this woman is deranged. She's insane. She is insane. Oh, she's the best kind of insane, though. She is just so much fun to watch, particularly in these scenes, because... I mean, as soon as she was captured and she's like, oh, you caught me. I was like, no, no, no. And then when Emma sends Elsa away, like you said, I was like, no, no, no. Because it it wasn't, it wasn't, it was never a question for me of whether or not the Snow Queen was going to get Emma into Emma's head. It was how and when and what would happen after. Because And why. Well, and why. And there's a big why over the Snow Queen, like really, and and Emma even addressed that. She's like, I want to know why, why, why did you erase my memories? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And the Snow Queen just completely deflects that, and by by attacking Emma emotionally, she really she, I almost want to say she bullied Emma in a way, especially at the end when she started bringing up bouncing baby Neil, and yes. It's it's so disturbing, but even though she's so quiet and subdued and all she has are words, she broke Emma. And I, it's just, when you think about it that way, it's kind of take a step back a bit and go, whoa, what did I just watch? Definitely. Um, as uh, Sarah Benedict just said in the chat room, she was pushing Emma's buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually leads to our next talking point. And actually, not our, even our talking point. That's what's going to lead into our um, our reflections segment, um, which is actually disarming your buttons. And I'm um, reading some of this off of psychologytoday.com. That's where it's coming from. We're getting deep on these reflection segments now, folks. So here's what this article says. It's actually quite simple. When your buttons get pushed, you react automatically. After all, that's what getting your buttons pushed means. Stimulus response, stimulus response, or rather stimulus reaction. For a response implies choice, and when your buttons are being hammered, your counter behavior is instantaneous. No forethought, no deliberation, or discretion. 
In such instances, you are impelled by a force that is far stronger, far more primal than your rational adult mind to strenuously defend yourself or to attack whoever has provoked you or in a sudden state of urgency to hastily retreat from the situation altogether, as Emma did. Mm-hmm. Getting your gun pushed almost invariably sends you on an unwelcome trip back to your past, to a time when you possessed precious few resources to protect yourself from what in the moment felt dangerous. And this involuntary present-to-past phenomenon is something that people who generally have very little awareness that the buttons that they've been struggling to control belong not to their present self but to their inner child of the past. That's that very exactly point. When I was... mm-hmm. Go ahead. That's exactly what the Snow Queen did. She pushed the buttons of Emma's inner child of the past. And this is actually something that relates to those of us here in real life because we all encounter people who, for one reason or another, want to push our buttons and get us heated for, you know, whatever reason. And in situ- and as, the site, as this article continues, in situations of perceived threat, how do we contrive to get our adult self back on the scene? Or better, are there practical ways we can keep our inner adult from leaving in the first place? Ways to keep that more mature, self-fully operational, even in situations that previously may have caused it to vanish completely. So the first, it goes on, the second part of it says that, you know, the topic of protecting your buttons is one that at least indirectly, you know, it, I mean, it, it's hard to discuss. And what, what it's basically, what it says is that it's critical to identify what pushes your buttons to begin with. Otherwise, there's no way that you can pinpoint or work through those past experiences that now prompt you to overreact to provocation that actually may be more felt than real. And it is important to recognize that what incites you isn't necessarily anything that would provoke somebody else. It may be because the current day stimulus unconsciously reminds you of something that upset you weeks, months, years, or even decades ago, that you're compelled to lose your cool in the present. But once you can make the required connections between the there and then and the here and now, you can begin to deactivate those buttons that, to this point, have irrationally taken over your behavior. And once you're able to bring a new and more positive self-understanding to whatever distressing messages about yourself you received or thought you received when you were younger, your essential self-image can undergo all kinds of transformative changes. So you should begin by asking yourself, does this hot button relate to getting criticized or disagreed with, nagged, slighted, scolded, disregarded, ignored? Is it tied to being rebuffed, spurned, made fun of, humiliated? Is it about feeling trifled with, made to feel weak, inadequate, stupid? Might it be connected to feeling unappreciated, unimportant, devalued, or maybe taken advantage of, powerless, or disrespected? Is it attached to feeling falsely or unfairly accused, distrusted, disapproved of, rejected? Is it being mistakenly perceived of as dishonest, guilty, or shameful? Or could it be some verbal or nonverbal cue suggesting that you are unloved or worse, unlovable? Now, tell me, dear friends, and Ashley, please comment because I'm kind of taking it over here. All of that is exactly what was happening with the Snow Queen and Emma. 
Well, the, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, as you're reading that, like bits and pieces of the episode were flashing in my head, such as well, the the perceived uh, slight that may not have been an actual uh, issue or confrontation, which we saw in the mommy and me class, where Emma made a big deal about uh, Snow going to a quote-unquote first-time mother's class. Um, And as much as Snow tried to kind of mitigate the situation, Emma still felt upset, so much so that her magic started leaking out and she was boiling the uh, formula in the bottle, which didn't help the situation at all because it prompted another reaction from Snow that Emma probably took more to heart than she should have. Um, And just... I find it very interesting that the article speaks about the inner child because, as we know, the Snow Queen knew Emma as a child. So just the idea of this woman taking all the insecurities that our savior, Emma Swan, had confided in her as a child, insecurities and conversations that she talked about and doesn't remember anymore because this woman stole those memories and has now turned them against her intentionally like she walked into that room with the intention of doing this to Emma that's terrifying that someone could have that amount of power over you and even as vulnerable as Emma was it didn't help that the snow queen had the upper candy the snow queen she was in control she started off prompting Emma what do you want to talk about so from that moment, you knew that it was the ball was in the Snow Queen's court. But I just find it very, very interesting all the talk about the inner child because Emma even said last season she feels like a lost girl. And as much progress as she as she's made with that support that she has from you know from Hook and Charming and Snow and the rest of her family, Henry, everybody in town, there's still little glimmers of that lost girl there and they'll come out if, unfortunately, if those buttons get pushed. And just talking about this now on this level is really, like, I'm getting a little wigged out by what the Snow Queen actually did. Like, it's it bothered me before, but now I'm really, really thinking about it. That awful isn't the word. It's, it's quite terrifying. It is. It's it's manipulation on a fundamental level, um, and it's it's really it's unspeakable what she did. It's uh, it's unspeakable. And this is um, a family show. Back, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that just shows that it's not just a family show. It's got some very deep psychological themes going on here. Oh yes, um, I agree. This show is about much more than just fairy tales, and anybody who doesn't think so can examine this situation. I want to get back uh, into what the sar- mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say what the Snow Queen did was an absolute perversion of what the show stands for. It is the perversion of family. It is the perversion of family. You're right. It is. I want to get back into what this article is saying as far as how we can disarm our buttons because I want this discussion to everybody who's listening to it. I want it to help you find a way of disarming your own buttons and not allowing somebody to have the kind of power over you that the Snow Queen had over Emma. 
So what this article says is consider making as comprehensive a list as possible of all the different things you can think of that have goaded you into seeing red in the past that trigger you to instantly defend yourself or attack the person who presumably intended to hurt you. Remember, it's safe to assume that anything powerful enough to have pushed your buttons previously is quite likely to push them again. And by now, it's been said countless times that nothing predicts the future better than the past. And the psychological dynamic of button pushing hardly represents an exception to this adage. So catalog everything you can think of that incited you in times past, and definitely consider as possibilities the extensive checklist of indignities that were inventoried above, the ones I was listing previously. Unquestionably, you will find a pattern, whether it's sensitivity to being criticized, to feeling demeaned or disrespected, to experiencing the other person as devaluing your viewpoint, or even to feeling utterly abandoned or rejected. If you're like most of us, you'll probably discover that you've got considerably more than a single button that is susceptible to external provocation. And if you're particularly insecure, you may find that you have more vulnerability buttons that then can easily be numbered. People characterized by others as thin-skinned may have the most number of buttons of all. Because once another person hits a nerve deep inside you, there is very little, at least in the moment, that realistically you can do. But if beforehand you can, number one, desensitize yourself emotionally from those past experiences that were originally experienced as deeply threatening, and number two, reassess positively the self-referencing negative meaning that these past upsets have held for you, that is, reinterpret these events in a way that is both accurate and self-validating, then you're well on your way to responding calmly versus reacting defensively or negatively to current day situations that in the past may have taxed your emotional resources. Okay? To the extent that, however unconsciously, you are still programmed to give others the authority to make you feel bad or doubt yourself, you'll instantaneously feel compelled to diminish their power over you by reacting negatively to them. But if you've been able to update your self-image by cognitively re-evaluating your past, thereby coming into your own irrefutable authority as an adult, you will no longer feel the urgency to react this way. For your emotional equilibrium, shored up by your ability to self-validate and self-soothe, will remain intact. Even in the face of serious outward challenges, if you've developed an essentially favorable sense of self, you won't feel threatened by another's insensitivity, put-downs, or lack of compassion or understanding. For you're no longer dependent on external validation to feel okay about yourself. Your feelings of inner security are now firmly anchored from within. And as a result, if someone says or does something to you that seems unfair or unkind, you are now fully capable of addressing it or them in a matter most likely to be effective. And at this point, the other person's once incendiary behavior won't throw you so off balance that you can no longer keep your cool. Once your fundamentally positive sense of self has crystallized, it's virtu virtually unassailable. And so, in trying situations, you're in an ideal position to explain yourself both tactically and tactfully 
without having to be concerned that your expression, facial or verbal, is likely to make matters worse. And additionally, responding assertively is in direct opposition to reacting aggressively, which may have been what happened routinely in the past when your buttons got pushed. It's somewhat analogous to being bullied, which is an extreme example of external provocation. Once you're able to stand tall in the face of another's ridicule or derision, you're practically immune to them. Nothing that your bullheaded opponent might say can make you feel oppressed or intimidated. No one can tease you or, for that matter, torment you, for you now have consolidated a favorable sense of self, one that is impervious to anyone who might sadistically wish to taunt you. None of this is really outside the bounds of human possibility. However, developing such psychological immunity hardly comes easy. It takes considerable self-discipline to systematically revisit especially distressing moments in your past that have negatively sensitized you to others. And understandably, not that many people are even willing to unearth memories linked to such unpleasant experiences as feeling repudiated, rejected, shamed, or abandoned. Yet, once the adult part of you is able to recognize that you're essentially a good, decent person, you can mentally return to such past circumstances to purge them of their toxic residue. And you hardly need to be some kind of exceptional human being to summon the wherewithal to undertake such deeper level exploration. However, if on your own you are simply unable to accomplish such self-change, there is the possibility of getting some professional assistance, which may well be worth it. Jennifer Morrison has actually spoken about this in the past. She spoke about it with me at Comic-Con in, in uh, 2013. She said that therapy has played a big part in her process of becoming who she is. She has mentioned that again after that. So that is something that even the actress who is portraying Emma has gone through and recognizes as an ideal tool with which to do this. So that's the, first, that's the first option, but that's only if you're unable to do it on your own. However, there are other approaches that you can use to do this. And before I get into those, Ashley, I would like to hear what you think about everything that I'm saying, whether it relates to you personally or what you see as far as how it relates to what's going on in the episode, because this is basically describing exactly what happened. I know, and it's, it's almost spooky that you found something, well, that you found something that was so spot on with the events as they played out in the episode. What I'm gathering from the article is that to prevent someone from pushing your buttons, you don't want to build walls. You want to build a foundation. You don't want to be aggressive and push people out and lash out. You want to build yourself up so that when they come at you, you'll be above whatever they've got to throw at you. I think that's excellent advice. I know that it, it's, a lot of, um, it's a lot of work to build a foundation like that, especially when one doesn't get um, the external stimuli, the, the praise and the positive feedback uh, to help build oneself up. Um, but that comes from really surrounding yourself with people who truly do care about you and realizing that they are not out to get you. 
um, making peace with people, if you've started yourself for a long time, learning to relax and trust people, I think, is, is the best first step you can make to building interpersonal relationships that will help you realize that you are above any of the other or the negativity or bullying um, that could come your way. Yes, I agree with that. Um, so getting back to this article, <clears throat> this is what it says. In order to help individuals change, it is essential to help them identify the irrational thoughts, assumptions, and beliefs that inevitably culminate in emotional distress and dysfunctional behavior. How you need to talk to yourself in tense situations is extremely important. If you think about it, it's only good sense to recall a previous confrontation that turned out badly and after replaying what you remember about what was said leading up, leading up to the stalemate or worse, picture how you might handle that present or similar situation differently. How, for instance, this time you can refrain from taking the bait or exaggerating the importance of some slip-up or perceiving just as awful the other person's insensitivity or assuming that their intentions towards you must be malignant, or that you're obligated to, your, to defend yourself against any and all criticism. The best thing you can do in the moment is nothing. You need only be aware that you are in, in imminent danger of losing it, and that if you don't hold your fire, you'll only be adding more fuel to the potentially fiery situation. What's really called for in such a situation is to take a deep breath and calm yourself down and then and only then respond to the situation as strategic possible. Here are some categories as well as some examples of the kinds of self-talk that can assist you in diffusing any possible upset. Number one, relaxation reminders. In preparing for a possible conflict, it's essential that you do everything feasible to put yourself in a relaxed state. If you start feeling uptight, you'll thereby up the chances that the interaction to follow will quickly begin to push your buttons. Some useful mantras to say to yourself include, okay, just take a deep breath and relax. I need to check my body for tension and relax whatever feels tight. I can stay calm in this. Or it's time for me to relax and slow things down. The other category is reassurance. In psychologically readying yourself for a difficult interaction, you want to give yourself something of a pep talk to tell yourself that you have the resources to deal with any provocation that may occur. So your script here might include some statements such as, although this could upset me, I know how to deal with it, or I can figure out a way to handle this, or I don't need to get into an argument. I can handle the situation before it escalates. The final category, which is stopping trigger thoughts, is next. Okay? And it's, it's divided into seven types of, of the ways of thinking, basically. So I'm going to get into those. Now, I will say really quickly that had Emma done these things, she would not have lost control the way that she did. But Emma does not have, she does not have the capability 
of doing so. She has had nobody to show her that. Um, and by the way, just in case any of you who are wondering, the podcast is supposed to end in 10 minutes. However, we have purposely began scheduling our podcast for a two-hour period of time so that if we start to go over, we can without any fear of it ending. This this will not be a two-hour podcast. However, we're not going to end immediately at seven because I think the discussion is going to go a little bit longer. I mean, hey, it might go to two hours. I don't know, but who knows? <laughs> so before we get into those seven to- – into those, um, actually, no, I don't even want to wait. I just want to get into it because I feel like I'm on a roll, and this is very important, and I want the audience to take something out of this. This is the whole point of the reflection segment is to bring this kind of information to all of you so that hopefully it can better your own life. So here are some different types of button-pushing thoughts as well as what you can say to yourself to effectively combat them. Number one, shoulds. The logical fallacy here is that your shoulds are somehow universal, that what is intelligent, reasonable, or moral for you ought to be for others as well. However, shoulds are your values and needs imposed on someone with different values and needs. So others are unlikely to be persuaded that they're wrong or bad simply because they haven't lived up to your own basically self-interested standards. Consequently, in your revised self-talk, you might say things such as, people don't do what I think they should, only what's rewarding or reinforcing for them. I can't expect people to act the way that I would act or as I would want them to act. Or, just like me, people do what they're compelled to, or I really can't blame others for focusing on their own needs, wants, or values. Number two, entitlement fallacy. This misconception is grounded in the belief that if you really want something, it's only right that you have it. Such thinking leads you to get your buttons pushed whenever others take exception to your righteous expectations and demands. For such demands may not feel at all reasonable to them, they may unjustifiably be asking themselves to relinqu- you may be asking them to relinquish their own wants, needs, limits, or boundaries. If this fallacy has somehow become part of your mental programming, then you might want to say to yourself, though I have the right to want something, others have the right to say no. Or my desiring something doesn't mean that others are obliged to provide it for me. Or, I have my wants and needs, and I need to respect that others do as well. Number three, the fallacy of fairness. Here the falsehood is that there exists a single standard of fairness, and surprise, it's your own. The fact is, however, that fairness is a completely subjective concept based on individual wants, needs, principles, expectations, and values. In short, Your definition of what's fair is self-serving, as is everyone else's. So if your buttons have gotten pushed in the past because you thought you were being treated unjustly, here are some things you might say to yourself before your next encounter with someone whose notions of fairness may conflict with your own. My notions on what's fair don't have any more authority than anyone else's. Their needs are just as legitimate and meaningful to them as mine are to me. What I see as fair is mostly just a reflection of my own preferences. Or, it's important that I validate their viewpoint too and think about how to negotiate our differences. 
Number four, the fallacy of change. This idea relates to the unwarranted belief that you can change another's behavior if you just work at it hard enough. But the fact is that people change only when it's rewarding for them to do so, and additionally when they're capable of it. So to keep your buttons from getting pushed by others who seem unwilling to cooperate with your well-meaning directives, think of saying to yourself, people only change when they're ready to. No sense trying to put pressure on them. The support that I'm getting is all they're capable of giving me right now. Or if I want this person to change, I have to figure out how they'd be more motivated to change, how change would benefit them. That seems a little manipulative, actually. But number five, conditional assumptions. Now, mind you, I just want to put this out there, too. I don't necessarily agree with all this, but it is um, it's some interesting thoughts that you may agree with. So I'm bringing stuff to the table even if I don't necessarily think that that's correct because some of this seems a little bit manipulative to me. Number five, conditional assumptions. The illogical thinking here pertains to your gratuitously assuming that because the other dis person disappointed you, they must not care about you. Ooh, this is a big one. And once you arrive at such an unverified conclusion, you'll start to feel upset, primed to react negatively to them. In such instances, here are some more rational thoughts to consider. I do agree with this one. I need to realize that my disappointment with them doesn't necessarily mean they don't care about me. It's not that they don't love me or appreciate me or respect me or empathize with me. It's just that their particular needs right now don't coincide with mine. Or, sure, I'm disappointed, but they still have the right to act according to their own needs. That one actually was one that I think that one is the one that has hit me the most so far out of all of these. I think that's the one that I most identify with. Number six, assumed intent. Otherwise known as mind reading, the fallacy here is that in assuming that if another person's behavior caused you distress, they must have intended to make you feel this way. And attributing negative motives to their behavior because it hurts you or disturbs you is really what's pushing your buttons. It's your subjective interpretation of others rather than their behavior that finally makes you lose your cool. So start thinking to yourself things like, I won't assume anything, I need to check this out. Or I'm not going to speculate about why they did that. Or no mind reading, I'll just ask them what they had in mind when they said or did what it was that annoyed me so much. And I have a good one too. That one I, have, I personally have an issue with uh, that one. That one actually really hit me pretty hard. Um, I, that is something that I personally know that I do and that I have to work on. And I wonder if that's something that Emma was doing um, with uh, Snow at the Mommy and Me uh, meeting when... You know, as as much as Snow was trying to fix the situation, Emma was kind of, oh, I, I wonder what was going through her head at that moment that kind of jump-started all of this conflict. Yep, that's, yeah. There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going on here with this. All right, the last point of this, magnifying. If you actually want to let someone or something upset your equilibrium, all you have to do is negatively exaggerate the significance of that person's words or the event that just occurred. 
tell yourself that it's horrible, disgusting, terrible, or even catastrophic, and your buttons will get hammered every time. So to distress yourself when you're ready, de-stress yourself, that is, when you're beginning to get upset and need to address the other person clear-headedly, think of telling yourself something that's like, this is unpleasant for me, but it's not that awful either. Or I'm not going to get ahead of myself. This thing probably isn't anywhere bad as I'm assuming. Or I'm not looking at this objectively. Yes, it's inconvenient, but it's hardly something to go ape over. Now, those are the seven different points of this, and that's pretty much the end of this article. For those of you who are interested, this article is called Disarming Your Buttons. It is a four-part article, and it was written by Dr. Leon Seltzer, who has a Ph.D., and it is on psychologytoday.com if you want to read the full thing, because I was paraphrasing much of that article, even though I read a lot of it. I still was, I didn't read everything. So I think that a lot of this relates to what was going on with Emma and the Snow Queen. I mean, obviously, we've just discussed some of those points. But looking at it in that way, the scene between Emma and the Snow Queen of having Emma's buttons get pushed by her it really relates to a lot of people. That happens on a daily basis, whether it's with your spouse, with your coworkers, with your friends, your relatives. That kind of thing happens. And I wonder how many tense, tense or dramatic situations could have been avoided if more people were cognizant of what their buttons were and how to disarm them including our savior, Emma Swan. Well, I think Ashley, a prime, think? Uh, oh, I was going to say, I think a prime uh, real-life example of people having their buttons pushed and maybe not having the tools to deal with it could be online, um, particularly the, what was it, number six, the assumed intent. You really can't read the tone of somebody's voice in a tweet you, especially if it's only 140 characters, you really don't know exactly what they are saying, you know, what their grand overarching message will be since they have such a short um, short way of putting things out there. So I think that a lot of folks maybe allow their buttons to get pushed by others on social media um, or others who intend to do harm on social media find it easier to push buttons because of how hard it is to read someone's intent over the Internet. I agree. I think that many times when it comes to things on the Internet, as well as things like text messages or email, I think that people read messages in whatever mood that they themselves are feeling at the time, not in the mood or, the, or with the intention that the person who sent it had. I, I agree. think that's a major part too. So that was our reflection segment for this podcast. I hope you, that you all enjoyed it and that hopefully it will bring something to your life. Maybe it will help you improve something, um, improve a situation or a relationship in your life if you feel that any of this is happening to you. I hope that some of this was helpful, that you'll consider it, and that you'll let us know. Um, I hope you all enjoyed our reflections article, or segment rather. 
getting back into talking about specific um, elements of the um, episode, I want to make sure that we get into that um, because there are a few more things that were going on that I really want to discuss. So first of all, the scene between um, when, I mean, I'll just say it, when Ingrid froze Helga. It broke my heart. Yeah, exactly. Tragic. Well, you, tragical, I think, was the word that you had used earlier. Yes, tragical in the sense that it is. it was a tragic use of magic. It was tragical. Oh. For me, that scene really, really stood out. Um, well, I, to toot my own horn, I, I had been thinking that the Snow Queen was going to murder her sister dead. But still, seeing that scene play out, seeing the, the, the stoic, cold Snow Queen just completely lose her bananas over her sister's not dead but dying body. She watched her the life slip away um, from her sister, and her sister basically turned into a bunch of ice cubes, and so there's really no coming back from that. But just seeing the Snow Queen just sobbing over that body, and then when Gerda comes up and you see the Snow Queen, again, somebody who, you know, is so in charge in her scenes with Emma and uh, and even with Rumpel a bit, you know, she still has a bit of leverage on him. To see her begging and sobbing for forgiveness, that just, that sticks with me. I mean, I have to say that is one of my favorite scenes just because of the just emotion that was pouring forth from my TV set while watching. Hmm. Um, the whole thing was heartbreaking, and 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 at this point, this is the scene that I want to give Elizabeth Mitchell a full round of snaps and applause because my God, that woman and her performance, my God, she really knocked it out. As with this she, one, she, she, amazing actress, amazing. She has been a great addition, I think, to this season as well. And I, I don't think yeah. that she's really overshadowing anyone either. I think that she works well with uh, different actors, whether it be Robert Carlyle or Lana Perea or especially Jennifer Morrison. I feel like she meshes well with uh, everyone and knows just the right amount, you know, to turn up the turn up the heat on her performance or not. Yeah, I agree. I want to kind of wrap this up because, uh, yeah, I just want to start wrapping this up a little bit. So uh, moving on to the next point, the Snow Queen and Rumpel. I don't understand why he suddenly wants world domination. I'm confused about it. It kind of seems a little out of left field for him. I mean, I know that the man is power hungry, but it doesn't seem to go with the Rumpelstiltskin who swore on Balefire's grave at the beginning of the season. Well, he was going to make a turnaround. I don't. Where I I don't know if I'm. I I read that scene the same way as you did. Um, I didn't see it so much as him wanting world domination, or as much as him wanting the world to to be in the way the Snow Queen phrases like you can have the world. I just want Storybrooke. I interpret that to mean that he wants to get the heck out of Dodge. Because let's face it, literally every time there is a magical catastrophe, people are like busting in his door and interrupting him and Belle. I kind of see it as him wanting 
to escape all that and be able to explore this land and have his power and have his wife and just have his happy ending of those two together, have everything like how the uh, the Snow Queen said. Mm. Um, as far as what she whispered to Rumpel, I think that she told him that he needs the heart of the thing he hates most, and Hook needs to look out. I think there's a heart involved, too. I, I, I'm wondering, I don't, I mean, he seems so gleeful about it, so I really, I feel like it kind of has to be Hook, but until we actually hear or someone say what we need, I I won't be I won't be comfortable being a hundred percent sure. But considering how antagonistic Hook and Rumble have become this season, I I think that's a good bet. I think so too. That's what I think, and he just needs to look out. Uh, the next point, um, which is our final point of the night. Henry with both Regina and Rumpel. Number one, I loved seeing him all dressed up to go to work. I thought that Rumpel's line about furniture polish was hilarious, and the fact that he is working with Regina on Operation Mongoose in such a close way makes me happy. For me, I honestly, I am curious. I think, I personally think Rumpel has got his number. I think Rumpel knows that he's not there just to learn the family business. I mean, just think about the way that he kind of looked at Henry when he after he gave him the furniture polish. Which I admit I, I that reminded me of the scene from have you seen um oh my god, Treasure Planet. That Disney movie Treasure Planet where he's like Long John Silver's like, I've got friends for you to meet, Mr. Mop and Mr. Bucket and Jim Hawkins is like, Really? That yeah. I was strongly reminded of that scene, um with the furniture polish with Rumpel but do you recall the way that he kind of looked at Henry when he skulked off to the back room? He had this knowing grin on his face. I really think that, you know, Henry wasn't as slick as he thought he was, and Rumpel kind of knows he's there for ulterior motives. Yeah, I don't know if he – I think that he might know what's coming, but at the same time I'd be delighted if he didn't. Um, I'm loving it. Um so that's pretty much it for this week's podcast, everybody. Um, I'm very interested to see where it's going to go. Next week, we are doing a, for sure, two-hour podcast because we have a two-hour episode to discuss, um, of which the press release indicates that there are some major happenings that are going to go on. Um, so we're going to have, you know, make sure we make enough time to talk about that. Also, just want to remind all of you that there is no Once Upon a Time on November 23rd because of the American Music Awards. So that's not next Sunday, the one with the next episode, but the week after that. And I'll make sure that we issue a reminder to you guys next week, too. But um, just want to make sure that everybody remembers there's no Once Upon a Time on November 23rd. Um, I believe that Amy will be back with us next week so the three of us can dish on the two-hour episode. Thank you all again for listening to this week's podcast. I hope that you all enjoyed um, the Reflections article, uh, re- Reflections segment, the article that I read. Um, if you didn't, well, that's okay. But um, I think that there's something in it for everybody. I think everybody could take something out of this. And we will be continuing our reflection segment next week uh, with a theme that will obviously be based off of whatever happens in the episode. 
Ashley, as ever, thank you very much for joining me um, on this week. I love hosting the podcast with you, as you know, and I'm looking forward to our discussion next week as well. I can't wait for that two-hour episode. I, I have a feeling we're going to have quite a bit to talk about. So thank you for having me, as always. Yeah, no problem. All right, everybody, we'll be back next week at 5.30 uh, Pacific, 8.30 um, Eastern Time for a special two-hour episode of our podcast. Until then, keep believing, have faith, have hope, because believing is in the possibility of a happy ending is a very powerful thing. See you guys next week. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.